0: Lesson number 1. The Elements of Ornithology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert J. Eckrich. The Elements of Ornithology by William Rushenberger. Lesson 1. The class of birds comprises all vertebrate animals that are best organized for flying. They are readily distinguished by the general form of the body and by the feathers with which they are covered. But the most important characters possessed by them consist in the structure of their internal organs and the manner in which their various functions are performed. In fact, they are oviparous vertebrata, in which the circulation is double and complete. The heart has four cavities. The blood is warm, and the respiration is aerial and double. To distinguish them from other vertebrate animals, it is only necessary to say that they have a complete circulation and a double aerial respiration, or simply to remember that they are the only oviparous vertebrata having warm blood. The general form of birds varies very little, and is in relation to the mode of locomotion which is peculiar to them. They rarely attain a very large size, and their abdominal or posterior extremities are especially designed for standing and walking, while the thoracic or anterior extremities never serve them for walking, nor for prehension, nor for touch, but they form a sort of broad oars named wings, which, by striking the air, sustain and cause the animal to move in it. The skeleton, which determines the general form of the body, and which is, at the same time, one of the most important parts of the apparatus of motion, is composed of nearly the same bones as that of the mammalia, but their form and disposition vary. The head is small, the bones of the cranium are soldered together at an early period of life, and the face is formed almost entirely by the jaws, which are very much elongated and constitute a beak. The superior mandible or jaw is articulated with the cranium in such a manner as to allow some mobility and the lower mandible in place of being articulated directly with the cranium as is the case in mammalia is suspended from a movable bone called the square or tympanic bone which is articulated with the petrous bone This mode of articulation of the lower jaw is met with also in other oviparous vertebrate animals, that is, in fishes and reptiles. These mandibles are composed of many pieces, and are enveloped in a horny substance which takes the place of teeth. The articulation of the head with the vertebral column is more movable than it is in mammals, and is effected through the means of a single rounded eminence called condyle while in the mammalia there are always two of these condyles. This arrangement enables the bird to direct his face entirely and completely backwards. The neck of birds is also very movable, and as these animals generally take their food from the ground with their beak, the length of this part of their body is necessarily in proportion to the height at which they are placed on their legs. This is indeed almost always observed the number of cervical vertebrae vary much most generally there are twelve or fifteen but sometimes we find a much larger number and at others not so many the swan has twenty-three and the sparrow only nine these bones are always very movable on each other and from the disposition of their articular surfaces the neck may be bent like the letter s And consequently be elongated or shortened accordingly as the curves are diminished or increased. The bony frame of the trunk is very solid in birds that fly, and with the exception of very few they all possess this difficulty, the vertebrae of the back, which necessarily support the ribs and consequently afford a point of support for the wings, are entirely immovable and are frequently ankylosed, that is, soldered together. The lumbar and sacral vertebrae are all united into one bone, having the same uses as the sacrum in the mammalia. Finally, the coccin vertebrae are small and movable. The last one, which sustains the large tail feathers, is ordinarily larger than the others and marked by a projecting spine or crest. The ribs of birds also possess some peculiarities of structure which tend to increase the strength of the thorax but the most remarkable part of the bony frame of this division of the body is the sternum which affording points of origin for the chief muscles of flight becomes very much developed and constitutes a broad shield or breastplate which extends far back over the abdomen and almost always presents a sort of very prominent and longitudinal crest or keel called brisket it is remarked that this shield is most developed and most completely ossified in those birds that fly best the bones of the shoulders are disposed in a manner most favourable for the power of the wings they are three in number namely a scapula a clavicle and a coracoid bone the scapula is much elongated The clavicle is ankylosed with that part of the opposite side so as to form a bone resembling in shape the letter V, the point of which rests against the sternum. The coracoid bone, or posterior clavicle, is a sort of second clavicle, which, in the mammalia, is rudimentary and confounded with the scapula, but here becomes very strong, constituting a buttress placed between the articulation of the shoulder and the sternum. These double clavicles maintain the shoulders apart in spite of the violent force applied in a contrary direction by the exercise of the wings, which is greater the stronger the flight. The wing of the bird corresponds to the anterior extremity of mammals, and is also composed of three principal parts, namely the arm, the forearm, and the hand. The arm consists of a humerus, which is not particularly remarkable the forearm which consists of a radius and an ulna corresponds in its length with the strength of the flight of the bird and the hand is reduced to a sort of stump which serves for the insertion of the large feathers of the wing there is distinguished a range of carpal bones a bone in the form of a style which represents the thumb a single metacarpal bone which sustains a finger with two phalanges and the vestiges of a third finger which is represented by a small styloid bone the lower extremities of birds are designed solely for support and for walking sometimes they become the organs of natation and there are some of these animals that employ them for the prehension of ailment the bones of the haunches are strongly developed they are attached to the neighboring part of the vertebral column so as to form with it a single piece and the bony belt which results from this assemblage, and which is called the pelvis, remains almost always incomplete in the front. The femur is short and directed forward, the tibia is strong, and the fibula is reduced to a mere bony style. The tarsus and metatarsus are represented by a single bone, the length of which determines the height of the bird on its legs. The number of toes varies from four to two, almost always there are three directed forward and one directed backwards the number of phalanges ordinarily increases from two to five from the hind toe or thumb to the fourth toe we therefore count two phalanges for the thumb or great toe three for the internal toe four for the middle toe and five for the external in swimming birds the toes are palmet that is united by membranes sufficiently broad to allow them to separate from each other and, when spread, to form a sort of paddle. In those that climb best, two toes are directed forward and two backwards. And in those that wade in rivers, marshes, etc., in search of fishes or worms, the tarsi are so long that the animal seems to be mounted on stilts. In all these animals, there is a peculiar mechanism, by means of which, when they are perched on a branch, the weight of the body tends to flex their toes, and, consequently, to make them closely embrace the object in their grasp, an arrangement which permits them to repose in the standing position without any risk of falling while asleep. The feathers with which the body of birds is covered serve to protect them against cold and damp, and they are also powerful means of locomotion. They are composed of a horny stalk, hollow at the base and armed with beards which themselves have still smaller beards upon them they are formed by secreting organs which are analogous in their nature to those which produce the hairs in mammalia the secreting organ destined to form a feather is called a capsule and often acquires considerable length according to the observations of m f Cuvier it would appear that the capsule grows during the whole period occupied in the development of the feather and that in proportion as its base elongates its extremity dies and becomes dry the moment it has formed the corresponding portion of this appendix each of these little apparatuses is composed of a cylindrical sheath lined internally by two coats or tunics united by oblique partitions and a central bulb the substance of the feather is deposited on the bulb, and to form the beards, is molded in some way, in the spaces that the little partitions we have just mentioned leave between them. In the portion corresponding to the stalk, the bulb is in relation with the internal surface of the stalk, and, after having there deposited a spongy substance, it dries and perishes. But at the part where the stalk or trunk of the feather is tubular, the lamina of horny matter which the secreting organ deposits is shaped or molded around itself, and is completely enveloped in it. Nevertheless, the bulb, after it has discharged its functions, dries and forms in perishing a series of membranous cones lodged one in the other like a nest of boxes which fill the interior of the tube and are called the sole of the feather or quill the new feather is at first enclosed in the sheath of its capsule which frequently projects several inches beyond the skin and is gradually destroyed the feather then appears naked and its beards display themselves laterally the extremity of its tube remains bedded in the skin but is generally detached without difficulty and at certain period falls to give place to a new feather this renewing of feathers which is called moulting occurs in general every year after the season of laying and sometimes it takes place twice a year in the spring and the autumn it happens earlier in the old than in the young and is a period of indisposition during which the bird usually loses its voice the form of these tegumentary appendages varies much some are destitute of beards and resemble the spines of the porcupine Others have stiff beards, which are armed with smaller beards, which hook into each other, so as to form a great tissue or coat, which the air does not penetrate. Others again have the beards and smaller beards, barbs and barbules, long, flexible, and not hooked into each other, which renders them extremely soft and light. And there are some which resemble simple down. Their colors are Infinitely varied, and often surpass the most beautiful flowers or the most brilliant gems in beauty and splendor. Generally, the plumage of the female is not so rich as that of the male, and it is rare for the young bird to be clothed in the same colors that it will wear all its life. They often change two or three years afterwards, and sometimes the adult wears a plumage in the spring altogether different from that of winter the large stiff feathers that grow on the anterior extremities of birds which are called wing feathers or pinion feathers expand these organs very considerably without increasing their weight and convert them into powerful oars destined to cleave the air and strike against it with so much force and frequency that the shock thus produced impels the body of the animal in a contrary direction THE ABILITY OF THE BIRD TO SUSTAIN ITSELF IN THE AIR AND MOVE WITH RAPIDITY IS IN PROPORTION TO THE EXPANSE OF THE WINGS. THE FEATHERS THAT CONTRIBUTE MOST TO THE EXTENT OF THE WINGS, AND THAT ARE MOST USEFUL IN FLIGHT, ARE THOSE WHICH ARE ATTACHED TO THE HAND AND, CONSEQUENTLY, MOST DISTANT FROM THE BODY. THEY ARE ALWAYS TEN IN NUMBER, AND ARE CALLED PRIMARY REMIGES. THE FEATHERS OF THE FOREARM ARE CALLED SECONDARY REMIGES. The scapulary, which are the least in strength, are attached to the humerus. The buzzard feathers are those that grow from the thumb, and the covaris, those feathers which cover the base of the remages. Every time a bird wishes to strike the air, he first raises the humerus with the wing still folded. Next, he expands the wing, extending the forearm and hand, and then suddenly depresses it, the air which resists this movement now affords him a point of support upon which he rises he launches himself forward like a projectile and the moment an impulse is given to his body he folds the wing to diminish as much as possible the new resistance which the ambient air opposes his course This resistance, and the attraction of gravitation, which tends to cause all bodies to fall towards the center of the earth, gradually diminish the swiftness the bird has acquired by his blow or stroke upon the air, and if he has made no new movement, he must soon descend. But if before losing the swiftness acquired by the first blow of the wing he gives a second, he will add a new impulse to that which he has already, and gain an accelerated movement. Such is, in fact, the mechanism of flight. While the bird is thus suspended in the air, the whole weight of his body is supported by his wings, and to enable him to preserve his equilibrium in this position, the center of gravity must be placed very nearly beneath the shoulders and as low as possible. It is for this reason that, while flying, he generally carries his head in advance by stretching out the neck, and that the body, instead of being elongated like that of mammals, is always gathered up and oval in this necessity for lowering as much as possible this centre of gravity we also find the reason for a peculiarity of structure which at first sight appears singular the principle of elevating muscles of the wings instead of being placed upon the back as is ordinarily the case in other animals are found upon the chest with the depressors and they produce an effect opposite to the latter because their tendons pass over a sort of pulley before reaching the humerus this arrangement is injurious to their action but it has the advantage of accumulating at the most depending part of the thorax all the most weighty organs of the body and consequently lowering thus far the centre of gravity it is evident that the resistance of the air is in proportion to the mass of this fluid struck at one time by the wings and consequently that the greater the surface of the wings all things being equal the greater will be the swiftness acquired by depressing these oars hence it follows that birds with long wings are not only able to fly with greater rapidity than birds with short wings but they are also able to support themselves for a longer time in the air because they are not obliged to repeat the movements of these organs so frequently and therefore do not become so readily fatigued and in fact all birds remarkable for rapid and long sustained flight have large wings while those that have short or moderate wings compared with the volume of their body fly less swiftly and require rest more frequently to rise vertically it is necessary that the wings of the bird should be entirely horizontal but this is not ordinarily the case in general they are inclined from front to rear so as to impart to the animal an obliquely ascending movement Sometimes even this inclination is such that, to mount nearly vertically into the atmosphere, the bird is obliged to fly against the wind. The length of the remiges influences the facility with which he can rise in a calm air. Birds that have the anterior remiges longest, and most resisting at their extremity, fly more obliquely than those in which the wings are truncated at the end. The feathers of the tail also assist in flight, but in a different way the bird makes use of them as a rudder to direct its course the number of the feathers which perform this office is ordinarily twelve and they are called retices and the name of coverts of the tail is given to those feathers which cover their base we have seen that during flight the centre of gravity of the bird should be near the shoulders in order that he may preserve his balance on his legs which are placed near the posterior part of his trunk these organs must be flexed considerably forward and the toes must be sufficiently long to be in advance of the point where the vertical line should fall that passes through the center of gravity or the center of gravity must be carried behind so as to be above the base of support this explains the utility of the great flexion of the thigh and the obliquity of the tarsus on the leg when the foot is large and the neck can be bent so as to carry the head behind the equilibrium is thus established without the body being thrown much out of the horizontal position but when the neck is short and the toes of moderate length the animal is obliged while standing or walking to assume an almost vertical position it is for the purpose of more easily preserving their equilibrium that birds generally place their heads under their wing while they sleep perched on one leg in most of these animals this position is rendered singularly commodious by a peculiarity in the structure of the knee. In man and most mammals, the extremities bend under the weight of the leg the moment their extensor muscles cease to contract. And it is continued contraction of these organs that renders standing so fatiguing. But in the stork and other birds with long legs, it is otherwise. The lower extremity of the femur has a hollow or excavation which, during the extension of the limb, receives a projection of the tibia, which cannot escape from it without a muscular effort. The leg, once in position, it remains extended, without the animal having any necessity to contract his muscles, and without his experiencing any fatigue. The sense of touch in birds is necessarily dull, on account of the nature of their integuments. The sense of taste also appears to be obtuse in most of these animals. And, in fact, their tongue is almost always hard and horny. In general, the same is true in respect to the sense of smell. Sometimes, however, this sense appears to be very delicate, for we observe that birds of prey direct themselves by odor alone to carry on, placed at too great a distance for them to perceive it, notwithstanding the great perfection of their sight. Generally, this last sense is more developed in birds than in all other animals there is found at the back part of the eye a plated membrane called pectin or marsupium which projects from the retina toward the crystalline lens and seems to be of a nervous nature it is also remarked that the anterior face of the ball of the eye is strengthened by a circle of bony pieces lodged in the thickness of the sclerotica and besides the two ordinary eyelids there is always at the external angle of the eye a third named membrana nicotins wrinkling membrane which may be drawn over the front of this organ like a curtain birds have not like most mammals an external ear nocturnal birds only have a large external concha or pavilion but it is not projecting and the opening of the ear is generally concealed by feathers with fringed beards the brain is less developed in birds than in most mammals and differs from that of the latter in some important particulars which we cannot enumerate at this time finally to conclude with the functions of relation we will add that in birds the voice is chiefly formed in the inferior larynx which is situated at the extremity of the trachea where it bifurcates to form the bronchia in the singing birds this organ is very complicated in its structure We observe elastic membranes stretched in the interior and a great number of muscles designed to move the solid pieces that compose it, but in those birds that do not modulate sounds, its structure is much more simple. The organs destined to perform the various functions of nutrition are nearly the same as those in the mammalia. The apparatus of digestion in the class of birds presents the greatest uniformity of structure. The most remarkable part of it is the existence of three stomachs teeth are never found in these animals their elements which are taken hold of by the beak are generally swallowed without being divided and do not sojourn or pass in the mouth as is the case in mammals they have no veil of the palate vellum palati, to close this cavity behind during mastication the form of the beak varies much and is always in relation to the nature of the food made use of by the bird. For this reason, it affords excellent marks or characters for the classification of these animals. Sometimes the upper mandible is hooked and fitted for tearing flesh. At others, the beak is short, straight, and stout, suited to breaking grains. At other times again, it is wide and very open to enable the bird to seize easily in its flight those insects upon which it is destined to feed. The tongue is slightly fleshy, and covered with horny papillae which serve to retain the food after it has entered the mouth. The oshyoides, or hyoid bone, which supports this organ, is very much elongated and terminates in two long, delicate horns which curve around the posterior and superior part of the head, their length depending on the extensibility of the tongue. The salivary glands are less numerous than in the mammalia. They are placed beneath the tongue and are formed of small round grains or granules. Generally, the saliva is thick and viscid. The esophagus descends along the neck and generally presents, at its inferior part, a considerable dilatation called the crop of ingulves. This pouch constitutes a first stomach, which projects above the clavicles. It is very large in granivorous birds and is met with in the rhapses or birds of prey but it is wanting in the ostrich and in most persivorous birds and particularly in those of the order of galatgrii below the crop the esophagus becomes narrow and enters the thorax soon after entering the thorax it again dilates to form the second stomach called the proventriculus or bulbous grandulosus This cavity is remarkable for the great number of follicles which are lodged in the thickness of the parietes and which secrete an acid liquid the gastric juice designed to effect digestion this ventricle is much larger and more numerously supplied with glands in those birds that have no crop than in those that are provided with it internally it opens into a third stomach the gizzards which is of globular form, and which varies in structure according to the diet or food of these animals. In granivorous birds, its muscular parietes are very thick and strong, and it is lined inside by a kind of thick, hard epidermis which resembles horn. In diurnal birds of prey, on the contrary, it is very thin, and in some aquatic birds, such as herons and pelicans, it forms but a single sac with the second stomach. The intestines of birds are not so long, generally, as those of the mammalia. In most of these animals, they are only two or three times the length of the body. The intestinal canal is divided into two portions, namely, the small and large intestine, and near the anus, it has two appendices, terminating in cul-de-sacs, called cecums. The small intestine communicates with the gizzard by the opening of the pylorus which is situated very near the cardia and is without valves the bile is poured into this intestine by two ducts which alternate with two or three canals through which passes the pancreatic juice the secreting organ of the bile the liver is generally more voluminous than in mammals and is divided into two nearly equal lobes the gallbladder is ordinarily large but in some birds, such as the parrot, it is entirely wanting. The pancreas are also large and are found in the first fold formed by the intestine. The cecums vary in length. In the granivorous and omnivorous birds, they are generally thick and long. They are wanting in most of the diurnal birds of prey, but in the nocturnal birds of prey they are, on the contrary, very large. The large intestine is very short and terminates in a dilatation called the cloaca which receives the urine as well as the eggs the chyle derived from the digestion of food is absorbed by the chyliferous vessels which unite with the lymphatic vessels of the extremities to form two thoracic ducts which mount in front of the vertebral column and empty into the jugular veins near the heart the blood of birds does not contain circular globules like that of mammals but oval globules, like those contained in the blood of reptiles and fishes. These solid particles are more abundant in birds than in other vertebrate animals, and the temperature of this liquid is higher than in the mammalia, which are, nevertheless, warm-blooded animals. The circulation is carried on in the same manner as in the mammalia. It is double and complete, that is, before reaching the point from which it departed, The blood passes through two systems of capillary vessels and all the venous blood is changed into arterial blood the heart has four cavities namely one ventricle and one auricle placed on the left and the same on the right side the blood is forced by the left ventricle into the aorta which distributes it to the capillary vessels of all parts of the body this liquid then returns to the heart through the veins and enters the right auricle which forces it into the right ventricle which is situated beneath it this last cavity by contracting sends the blood to the lungs through the pulmonary artery from the pulmonary artery the blood passes into the capillary vessels of the lungs where it is changed into arterial blood then it enters the pulmonary veins and passing through them reaches the left auricle finally the left auricle pours it into the left ventricle once we have just seen it go forth to be distributed to all the organs. Birds are distinguished from all other vertebrate animals by their mode of respiration, which is aerial as it is in the mammalia and reptiles, and it takes place not only in the lungs but in the substance of all the other organs. In the mammalia and in the reptiles, the bronchi terminate in little cells, which end in a cul-de-sac, and the air that enters the lungs cannot pass beyond them, while in birds, the bronchi and pulmonary cells communicate with the great cavities, and this liquid, in this manner, penetrates to all parts of the body, even into the interior of the bones and feathers. These cavities, by means of which the air is distributed to the different parts of the body, are formed of very thin laminae of cellular tissue, and are designated under the name of aerial pouches. Consequently, the blood comes in contact with the air in passing through the capillary vessels of all the organs as well as in passing through the capillary vessels of the lungs and we might say that the respiration of these animals as well as their circulation is double a bird consumes proportionably more air than any other mammal and perishes more rapidly when its respiration is interrupted the cavity of the thorax which contains the heart and lungs, is not separated from the abdomen by a complete muscular partition, as in the mammalia. The diaphragm is rudimentary, and only occupies the sides of the body. But the lungs are adherent to the ribs, so that they are forced to dilate when these bones separate from each other. Therefore, the movements of inspiration and expiration are performed nearly in the same manner as in the mammalia. End of Lesson 1. Recording by Robert J. Eckrich. Germantown, Maryland, USA.